Hey everyone, it's Mike. This is the second episode that we're doing during our big summer break. Another episode from our Patreon series, Mike and Paul Read Doom Patrol. We never really came up with an official title for this series, but it was Paul and I talking about Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol run and combing through all the very interesting and intricate pieces that made up that series. So if you're interested in Grant Morrison's run, you're really going to love this episode. And if not, you at least get to hear me be very confused about what the heck Grant Morrison was doing for a while back in the 80s. So enjoy this episode, and we hope you dig on the Patreon stuff. And if you want to listen to more of these episodes, make sure you head over to patreon.com slash podcast to get access to this and a bunch of other stuff that we have over there. This is a very special brand new series for I Read Comic Books. This is the Paul and Mike Read Doom Patrol miniseries. <laughs> Uh, trademark patent pending. Uh, we're definitely trying to figure out what the name of this should be, but this is a new series that Paul and I wanted to put together because Paul wanted to reread Doom Patrol, and I'm too super down with that. And so we're going to do a whole show going through each individual volume of Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol from 1987. For this episode, we are talking about issues 19 through 25. This is technically volume one if you're collecting it in the old collected editions, but. If folks like this, we're going to keep doing it. I think we're going to do the whole Doom Patrol no matter what people say. We don't care (laughs) if you like it or not. But (laughs) anyways, joining me this week, joining me on this little series that we're going to do is Paul Jaceley. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Mike. I'm so glad we're finally doing this. We've talked about reading Doom Patrol together for a while. I know, um, I know. I'm glad we're finally doing it. And I, I think this will give us a chance since we're taking it in little chunks here and reading it like six issues at a time. Give us time to really go deep into this stuff and really pull out all the meaty, interesting details of Morrison's Doom Patrol. Probably my favorite comic book series. I know I talk yeah. about this one in Love and Rockets a lot. Going back and rereading this, I was reminded just how much I love this series. I'm glad to finally have a chance to talk about it with you for the listeners. Yeah, man. I This is something I know you told me a long time ago to read. Um, I'm talking like when the show started kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've always put it off. And then I bought all of the comics on Comixology during some sale. And I've just been sitting on them. And I honestly, I did read volumes one through three. I had already read all of those. So this is my first revisitation to the Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. <laughs> and boy, oh boy, my perspective has drastically changed <laughs> since the first time I sat down to read this book. So well, yeah, that, that's good. I want, to, I want to pick your brain about this stuff. So I guess maybe a little housekeeping before we dive too deep into this yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we are reading the collected editions that came out like maybe like 10 years ago so it's collected in seven volumes about six or seven issues per volume uh, if you're reading along with us it has been more recently collected into three bigger volumes so this is we're reading uh the first i think six issues 19 through 25 yeah, yeah. right um and I have some notes about Doom Patrol history that I want to go over, Mike, because I don't know how much of the Doom Patrol you really know about outside of this run. So Yeah, that was that was actually a question that I, I had going into this rereading it thinking, oh man, I kind of just fell into this book yeah. rolling with the punches like I would any X-Men book, which is usually <laughs> like my my mental model of how I how I approach these types of things but um yeah like the this is a this is a big book that had Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of history going into it but grant morrison took over with richard case and doug braithwaite on art throughout this arc with hannah or scott hannah carlos garzon 
John Nyberg on inks, Daniel <laughs> Vazo and Michelle Wolfman on colors, and John Workman on letters. And John Workman deserves a gold medal for this series, I will say. <laughs> but anyways, give us some history, because honestly, I felt like I was lost again, like just okay. like the first time I read this. Um, so yeah. go ahead. Okay, so the Doom Patrol first appeared in 1963. Um I think it cover dated June 1963. They appeared in a book called My Greatest Adventure, which eventually gets renamed Doom Patrol. You know, um, They were originally created by Arnold Drake and Bob Haney, the writers, with uh, Bruno Premiani doing the character designs and drawing a lot of those early issues. Mm-hmm. And the, the Doom Patrol were you know, marketed as the world's strangest heroes. You have a group of heroes, um, quote-unquote heroes, I guess, people that had abilities that they gained through sort of unfortunate means, if, if that yeah. makes sense, yeah. Um, Robot Man, Cliff Steele is a race car driver who was uh, who was in a race car accident, and the only thing that survived was his brain. So he put his brain in a robot body. You had of course, um, like you do <laughs> exactly. Uh, Larry Trainer is negative man. Uh, he was a pilot whose body was inhabited by a negative energy being that could he could use uh, in bizarre ways. And then um, Rita Farr was Elasta Woman. So that's the original team. And they're okay. led by an incredibly smart man in a wheelchair named Niles Calder, the chief. So you have a group of heroes that are uh, have unfortunate histories. They're sort of looked at with fear by the general public, because the general public doesn't know what to make of with about them. And they're led by an incredibly smart man in a wheelchair. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you at, at all, Mike. Does that ring a bell? I, you know, <laughs> I I feel like I've heard of a story like this, but it must have been Doom Patrol, right? <laughs> right. There's nothing else like that. You know, right. so that 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 is part of their history is the fact that the Doom Patrol appeared in 1963, um, a few months before the first issue of X-Men comes out. And there's a lot of oh, similarities between the two teams. Um, and I don't know how deep to get into this stuff, but Arnold Drake, the creator of the Doom Patrol, kind of felt like Stanley and Jack Kirby ripped off the Doom Patrol to create X-Men. I don't know if that makes sense, given how much lead time they would need to make the issue you know, yeah, how many yeah. months involved. So I don't think that they did rip off the Doom Patrol um, to create the X-Men. My maybe argument... Maybe it was just something of the times. Like, maybe that was, like, the type of story that people just wanted. And so you get Stanley and Jack Kirby coming up with this thing, as, you, as well as these guys coming up with Doom Patrol. I don't know. Your take. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, no that, that's fine. I, I think that... I think that's probably what it was. It just it was something in the air at the time. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of similarities between a lot of characters between Marvel and DC at the time. They had a lot of creators going back and forth between the two companies, so maybe there was some sort of espionage, you know, sort of <laughs> going on, but oh, sure. I, don't, I don't quite buy that. My argument, though, is that I think the Doom Patrol, for me, are a better version of the X-Men than <gasps> most X-Men I comics. see what this is all about. <laughs> no, 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 not to, uh, <laughs> not to attack you, Mike. I know you feel attacked with that, but... <laughs> Kidding, yeah. I think Morrison's take especially does something with these characters that... Um, it feels more what the X-Men are marketed as than most when I tried the X-Men. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, yeah. May, that may be a discussion that goes throughout all these episodes as we read through it. So, that Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. And I know we want to dive in and cover all the issues here, but mm-hmm. <clears throat> the your point actually kind of rings true in a lot of ways. And I never approached or thought of it that way because I think... The idea of the X-Men from Marvel is we've got this, you know, happy-go-lucky feeling on our side and we're going to save the day despite people not liking us. Right. Whereas Doom Patrol feels like we are so down and out, but we know <laughs> that the right thing we have to do is save the world. We're going to be pissed about it the entire time because we right. know that people don't like us. Right. But we're still going to do it because it's the right thing to do. I actually 
that's a very interesting way to approach it. I think later X-Men stories started to take that kind of approach. Like, you'll, you'll see that in some modern stuff, probably definitely in the late 80s, early 90s. And in the Grant Morrison era of X Men, maybe, but right. uh, I, I think that that's a really interesting take on that. I've never, I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, I, I do think there's a similarity between those two teams. I, my other argument, sort of maybe a caveat here, is that I think Morrison kind of uses the Fantastic Four model for his take on the Doom Patrol. Mm-hmm. But thematically, I think there's a lot of connections to the X-Men. Anyway, I think that's a rabbit hole we could dive down maybe <laughs> yeah. later. We'll touch um, on that on every episode just so that we can <laughs> thoroughly you know, trace the whole thing. Exactly. So uh, the short history here is that the Doom Patrol were created in 1963. They are moderately successful. Uh, the book actually gets canceled in 1968. Um, and Bruno, and uh, Bruno Premiani and Arnold Drake end up killing off the whole team, which is kind of amazing oh. to think about. I mean, that's a very early example of comic book characters being killed with the mm-hmm. cancellation of the book. Um, they sort of appear again in the late 70s in sort of one-off stories, but then in 1987, Paul Kupperberg relaunches Doom Patrol as its own series, and that's where this volume two is that Morrison takes over a few issues later. Right. So uh, what's interesting is that Paul Kupperberg's take on the characters, and I think uh, Eric Larson drew most of those issues, actually the young Eric Larson is one of his oh, first, no way. first uh, assignments. Yep. Um, those issues aren't great, but what's interesting is that Kupperberg is clearly modeling his take on the Doom Patrol off of Chris Claremont's X-Men. So you have, he introduces a bunch of new characters. A lot of them have vaguely defined energy-based powers. They're wearing like jumpsuits that are identical. It's very much an X-Men take on the characters, and it doesn't work, in my opinion, at all. Gotcha, gotcha. (laughs) Um, So Morrison gets tapped to take over the book uh, with issue 19, and the first 18 issues basically... It's Kupperberg trying to do something with, interesting with the characters, with all these new Doom Patrol characters he introduces. He ends up killing off most of them at Morrison's request, because Morrison wants to, you know, just focus on a couple characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, so issue 19 is Morrison's first uh, issue with Richard Case on pencils. And I love that the first four issues are a story called Crawling from the Wreckage, which feels like a not-so-subtle jab at Kupperberg's take on the characters. It's like, yeah, <laughs> sure. that didn't work. Yeah, You destroyed the book. I'm here to save it. So... That's what yeah, we get. And and this story starts off like in a very strange way. Like again, I felt like I fell into the book not really knowing anybody but getting a weird introduction to folks yeah. with the exception of Rita who is in this coma for some reason. I and I didn't know why, didn't really get a reason why from even in the second reread. I didn't okay. I didn't actually figure out what the whole deal was, which was kind of one of the questions that I had for you like the sure. book start in this character Rita is in a coma and we've got Metal Man in <laughs> Robot Man in mm-hmm. the in an insane asylum that he placed himself there. Right. Uh, I mean, th- there were so many like just kind of where are we coming from? But I also think that some of the better stories that I've read in comics start like that on issue one, where like there is some established history and. Mm-hmm. You don't know the gist of it. You don't know the, all the, the complete story. And so you start to get pieces and pieces of that as the story goes on. Now, I don't know if Doom Patrol does fully flesh out all these reasons because I think that the book kind of just takes – it hits the ground running and just goes, we're just going to move on past all that stuff because I got some story to tell that's really going <laughs> to fuck with your head, um, which is kind of the premise of this book. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't feel like I was missing that much. Like, after issue one, the book kind of just hits the ground running, Mm -hmm. and it's like, there's way too many bigger, crazier things to think about than, what about this character's history? Why are they in the (laughs) hospital? Like, that doesn't matter. It really doesn't. And I think what's interesting is this is an example of 
you know, how comics used to function. So this is 1989 by the time Morrison takes over the title. And I think nowadays you would have the thing where after issue 18 with Copperberg's wrong, the book would be canceled and then relaunched a few months later with a new creative right. team and a new number one. Right. You know, right. back then this was, no, there was a continuing series and Morrison just happens to jump in. Conveniently, there was a big crossover event that DC was doing at the time, the Invasion storyline. So Coverberg was able to kind of have the Doom Patrol involved with the Invasion storyline, write characters out. He kills most of the characters he introduced. But mm-hmm. then Rhea Jones is a character named Lodestar that he introduced in his run that ends up in a coma. And then Morrison does something inter- interesting with in this volume. Um, in Coverberg's run, instead of Larry Trainer's Negative Man, you had a Russian uh, pilot I can't remember her name, but she ends up being inhabited by the negative energy spirit and being a negative woman. The energy spirit leaves, so Morrison's able to get Larry Trainer back on the book and the Mm -hmm. team in his run. And then um, the character Dorothy Spinner that's introduced a few issues later, like that's another character that Kupperberg created that Morrison takes over um, for this run. So so Morrison clears house, and I think very smartly he focuses on Robot Man, because Robot Man is literally the best character in the series. Oh, absolutely. And one of my favorite comic book characters. God, I yeah. love Cliff Steele. So, yeah. Um, and I think what's interesting is that, so we start with Cliff Steele in an insane asylum that he placed himself in. He becomes kind of like our view into the team, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's kind of the, the standard for the reader. With, with a handful of, like, small vignettes with other characters. Because I think, yeah. what's his name? Was it Joshua? Mm-hmm. Kind oh, of. right. Be- Yep. He kind of becomes like another character that we see that perspective from occasionally. But yep. on the whole, it seems like Cliff is the person who's there to be like in the middle of the shit being like, I don't want to do this. I guess I got to <laughs> do this like <laughs> constantly, which I, oh my gosh, one of my favorite moments <laughs> is just Cliff just constantly saying, this is beyond me. Like when they start talking <laughs> techno babble or whatever, he's like, I don't yeah. even want to deal with this. This is not my thing. But anyways, <laughs> continue. <laughs> well, I think that's interesting because, you know, Morrison's take on the Doom Patrol is like, there's still the world's strangest heroes, but what's strange to Morrison in 1989 are things that test the limits of our, of our logic and our reason. So that he introduces things like occult practices, secret societies, mm-hmm. you know, theoretical mathematics, all this like grab bag of like strange stuff. And Cliff Steele, yeah, is the character who's like, yeah, I'm just a race car driver. I don't understand any of this, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, um, but there is something really unique about that character that, even back in the 1960s version, this idea that Cliff Steele is separate from his body. And I think the idea that everyone's felt uncomfortable in their own body at certain times. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's a very relatable thing. And I think Robot Man is a great example of that because, you know, there's all these things where he's saying, like, I have emotions, I just can't feel them. Or, like, he can't feel the natural world. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. All the things you're... He talks about, you know having to remember what food tastes like, remember what it feels like when it's the windy outside, you know what I mean? And all these things we take for granted, I think that's what makes the character so relatable is this idea that, yeah, that's feels like torture, you know what I mean? To be uncomfortable in your own body. Yeah. I mean, and I, I love there, there's just, there's a lot of stuff with that throughout these, this entire volume. And I think it continues beyond as different things happen to Cliff um, that I, I really appreciate it. I think like each of the characters in this book, maybe, I don't know if, Crazy Jane is maybe a good example, but I sp- I think that you know Larry Trainer as Rebus yeah. and uh, Cliff they kind of are these analogs for people that are outsiders that have this different way of approaching like the thing that we all take for granted that we call life you right. know like not being able to feel or taste or 
truly see anything. Like, obviously, Cliff has this ability to speak and this ability to, to interact with things, um, which kind of goes against that idea of, well, I can't touch or feel or whatever. But yeah. um, even still, the him saying that, him exploring that, and with the same with Rebus of saying, I'm not one person, I'm many people, I'm not one gender, I'm many genders, like, all right. these things that I, to, today, I'm like, holy shit, this is, like, right on the level, but I can't even imagine what 30 years ago was like, because we weren't, I feel like, as a culture, we weren't talking about these types of, um, I don't want to call them problems, but these different approaches to life that some people had and didn't know how to probably put words to, and then you get a comic like this that is exploring those things on top of being an action-oriented, you know, punch him, beat the bad guy comic, right, but right. using those moments as ways to say, I don't like this, or I don't want to talk about this, um, it's really, really smart. I, I was re- always impressed. Like I said, second reread, I was just like, wow, this is this book really got some things right. Yeah, I, I think that's why it's... I think it's one of Grant Morrison's strongest books, and it's a book that I think people that maybe wouldn't normally like Grant Morrison stuff should try because I think he does touch on some really important issues with this book. I mean, Mm -hmm. like the character Rebus is a fascinating, you know, uh, example of the combination of male and feminine aspects, this idea of, you know, a hermaphroditic character in a book. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's some pretty groundbreaking stuff in 1989. Um, and I think even more relevant today, honestly, and the yeah. character uh, Crazy Jane, who we should probably get right to her because I think the moment in issue nineteen where you have Cliff Steele, you know, Robot Man meeting Crazy Jane, who is this woman who has dissociative disorder. I think that's what dissociative, uh, dissociative I, yeah, 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 dissociative has, identity disorder. <laughs> correct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, she deals with uh, some severe. Uh, abuse she suffered as a child by creating 64 different personalities. And thanks to the events of the invasion crossover that I mentioned earlier, uh, the gene bomb that the alien invaders set off, maybe we should read invasion as well to kind of get the full picture here. Oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm just kidding. Uh, They set off a gene bomb, which triggers abilities in people around the globe. Uh, She's affected and each one of her personalities gets their own superpower. So she basically Mm -hmm. has 64 different superpowers. But anyway, uh, Cliff, is in the same same asylum as Crazy Jane, or Kay Chalice is her real name. Mm-hmm. And he's introduced to her, and that moment when they meet, that is one of the most important moments in the whole series, because I think their relationship really forms the heart of the book, and it gives the book a sort of um, a tenderness, and a, and a personality that I don't think you see in a lot of superhero books, and even other Graham Morrison books. Mm-hmm. You know, their relationship, it's not its not romantic, it's not sexual, it's just two people that care about each other, and Cliff Steele kind of gets out of his own head, you know, and says, oh, there's other people with other issues or other problems that are even bigger than mine, and he feels a, a, a desire or a need to help Jane deal with her issues. Yeah, it's it's kind of one of those things where if if you have some sort of issue that you're working on helping someone else with an issue can also help you right. and i think it's they become dependent in a way on each other not in a in a bad way no. but in a way that is uplifting the both of them by helping each other um right. and i yeah they i i wanted i had all my notes were on just like these <laughs> like mo- these touches of like really cool things i thought that were done with comics yeah um so i i don't want to necessarily detract from that but uh i i did like like cliff's Cliff's look at life was very just lackluster and depressed. And right. I think as the story goes on, it gets a little bit better. But he becomes he goes from like depressed to just 
being very cynical and very just tired of this bullshit. Like, <laughs> I don't know what else he wants to do outside of saving the world. Right. But he obviously isn't here to just save the world, which I, I get even just from these six issues of the story. Right. Yeah. I, he Again, I think he serves as a stand-in for us as the reader where it's like, we're not exactly sure what's going on in this book. Mm-hmm. But we feel compelled to keep going. He is again. I, I know I mentioned the Fantastic Four. He is the Ben Grimm character, right? He is oh, the absolutely. thing essentially. Yeah, and then maybe that's why I like him so much because I love the, both those characters. But yeah, yeah, you know, and even the, you know, there are moments like again we mentioned like where he says, you know, what is going on? He just can't wrap his head around anything. And then, <laughs> I mean, that and, happens multiple times in this <laughs> book. Like, and I I really appreciated like. I'm just going to go full tangent here because there sure. was just a couple of moments that I, I wanted to make sure we touched on. The way that the scissor men were done in this book was <laughs> right. such a really interesting idea. And it's not the scissor men themselves, but the way they, quote unquote, remove people from reality, mm-hmm. I thought was such a smart way to do very little work in a comic for such a big impact. Right? Like, you get something yeah. where these people are cut out of reality and they're just these white silhouettes. And I was like... For a book that is just chock full of co- color, like an 80s comic usually is, is these hot colors everywhere. Um, right. This absence of color and absence of anything is very obvious. It's so hard to not look at because it kind of just draws your eye. It's the brightest, most obvious thing on the page because it looks like there's something lacking. And mm-hmm. yet that's the intention. I, I was really blown away by that the second time seeing this. And they, they do this all over the book and, oh, it's a mirage and blah, blah. It gets explained story-wise. But I thought like from a an art perspective, it was really clever the way they did that. Um, yeah. I, I Going back and rereading it, I, I think Richard Case's artwork is super underrated because mm-hmm. he it's not flashy really ever it's a lot of it's sort of flat to the page you know yeah it's good it's he he has good storytelling chops um but then when he has to do something crazy he really delivers you know there's those moments when the scissor men show up and then there's a moment in issue 19 um where larry trainer and the dr elnor pool are fused together by the energy spirit to create rebus oh man that yeah. page is so great you know yeah. and it's so unlike the rest of the book it stands out and i think Morrison and Case have a great relationship with this book where it's like you can see Morrison this here's what I want and Case kind of like is able to kind of deliver in a way that really is visually striking you know and that's not always easy to do with some of Morrison's ideas yeah and I think you know you get things like the bone city mm-hmm. <laughs> or you get you know one of, one of the, the funniest things I thought to me was the the road to Orquith which was the the shadow realm or bone world whatever you want to call it um <laughs> right. that parallels ours and only intersects with our universe like once every hundred years i think they said um somehow that was on the ace line of the new york city subway transit like right yeah i was gonna ask if you knew what line that was i did i i definitely spent way too much time double checking to make sure where that was going but yeah it's definitely on the ace line that goes down through manhattan (laughs) and i felt like yeah i'm a true new yorker now after seeing that but uh no i i i liked a lot of the stuff that they did with this alternate universe um playing with these riddles of like like of thought where like this entire universe can be undone with a simple question and yet it is this massive thing that has existed for however long um (laughs) i i I really enjoyed this the idea of be something so big being taken down by something so small as a logic problem and i was like this felt like morrison's kind of slide of of a note across the table to you to say, Hey, I'm just getting started with this book because what happens after this becomes even bigger than that. Right. Right. So, um, 
I think that's an important point. Uh, this book, Morrison is trying to do a subversion of the typical superhero team tropes. You know what I mean? The mm-hmm. Doom Patrol are a team. They're assembled by Niles Calder, but there's a sense like they might not really get along. There are definitely hints that Calder has some ulterior motives. You know, there's references oh, yeah. to him being connected to the government pretty high up. Yeah. Um, the way he gets the teams together seems strange. You know, I do want to make a quick note before we get too far. Uh, I think it's page five in issue 19. We see the first example of Niles Calder eating a chocolate bar. And that's a theme throughout the book that'll come up again and again. And I have no idea what it means. <laughs> so if you can okay. send some light of that later on, because I it happens again in the same volume. Uh-huh. It happens again a few issues later where you see him eating a chocolate bar. And it happens mm-hmm. throughout the series. Anyway. But the idea that there's that moment, I think it's in issue 20, um, where or issue 21, whatever, when they finally have to confront the big, you know, threat, the Orquith. Yeah. Robot Man has a quote where he says, like, you know, I tried to reason with them, but I just decided to trust mindless violence, you know, to paraphrase what he says, you know? Yeah, yeah. So he's the gung-ho run in and punch everything. And then meanwhile, you have Rebus, the character has to actually go do a logic philosophical problem to uh, save the day, quote unquote. So it's the idea that, you know, the typical superhero team is they show up, they have a big blowout fight and then they win. Here it's, they don't really win. They just have to convince, <laughs> they have to convince the fictional world that's invaded our planet that it doesn't exist. You yeah. know, that's a very different uh, superhero tactic. Yeah, there there was that, that moment where they described the two bishops and they have clocks for faces. Like, mm-hmm. what a beautiful visual of these, like, one tells the truth, one always lies. Like, yeah. this is a logic puzzle in, in Dungeons and Dragons. This is like a logic puzzle you'd see in stories where a character has to solve something. And I mm-hmm. feel like they could have easily stretched out that idea for much longer if they wanted to. Like, they could have done a whole issue on debating with the liar and the truth teller. Right. And I, they didn't because, you know, this is a superhero book and we kind of got to get things done. But um, <laughs> there there was a moment, you know, that I think it was Cliff that said, Orkwith can be destroyed. It just has to be made to confront its own reality. reality. That's yeah. all. Like, these, these <laughs> things were like, even the character is mocking the idea of the story. Right. Um, that, like, this is so big, it's such a simple task. Not really. It, sarcasm can be read in comics and cliff is proof that that's true um i I just really like that i again i felt like morrison's just hinting at something bigger and i think the following issue because this first volume is like an arc and then two one-off issues yeah issue number 24 was like a monster of an issue that was all compressed into this thing i don't mean to like skip ahead if you had more to say on that last arc but um i think that the, the following two issues kind of put the whole get ready for some very high-level shit that's going to happen. Not in like a, this is the world ending, blah, 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 garbage you'd see in every superhero mo- book, because they just mm-hmm. did that in the previous arc, but that right. you need to really be thinking about stuff, because I'm going to start laying breadcrumbs that are going to start paying off in issues like 5, 6, 7, 10, 12 issues down the line. Right, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, very quickly, maybe just kind of recap that opening arc the crimes yeah, of the yeah. records the four issue thing so um morrison borrows pretty heavily from the argentinian author jorge luis borges who wrote a very similar story uh in which you have a group of philosophers theologians academics writing a fictional um encyclopedia so an encyclopedia yeah. about a fictional world and then suddenly objects are described in the encyclopedia start showing up in our world. And Morrison basically takes that idea and creates this idea of this place called Orquith, 
which is a fictional reality written that a bunch of philosophers, you know, wrote about, and suddenly it's invaded our world. It's become real. So then, this, as we've hinted out, the the story resolves itself when uh, the Rebus <laughs> convinces Orquith that it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. right? I think that, again, is the idea of Morrison saying, you know what's really strange? Our logic is strange. You know, philosophical concepts are strange. Occult practices are strange. So he mm-hmm. is really doubling down on this idea that what's really frightening and terrifying are these moments where suddenly reason doesn't seem to work anymore. You know what I mean? We have to think outside our logical framework. And Cliff Steele's that character is always kind of pointing that out. Like, yeah, this is really bizarre. And everyone else in the book seems to kind of roll with the punches. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which I love. <laughs> yeah. Um, very quickly, we should maybe explain in more detail what Rebus is. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess if you haven't read this, we're kind of maybe discussing a book that... Doesn't make any sense. So oh, right. go back and reread Doom Patrol. But yeah, Rebus <laughs> Rebus is a very complex character. I, I there was a moment in the issue where you know after the Doctor and uh, and you know Larry Trainer are merged together into this new being mm-hmm. that that Rebus goes and talks to the Doctor's husband or soon to be husband. Right. And yeah. uh, what a beautiful moment where this character he doesn't. I, I sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I guess Paul, do you want to explain Rebus to the to the listener, and then we can go into my other thing. So essentially, Rebus is uh, the fusion of Larry Trainer with a doctor, Eleanor Poole, who was at the hospital, you know, looking after Larry, mm-hmm. and uh, the end the negative energy being comes back to inhabit Larry, and he ends up fusing the two of them together. And the way, so it, it, the way that Rebus explains itself to. Niles Calder is that it's the combination of male and female, black and white, because Elnor Poole is an African-American woman. Uh, Larry Trainer is a white man. Um, and it's like this, the fusing of two opposites or two different things into one. And he uses the terms of, you know, medieval alchemy to explain it all. The term rebus is the yeah. the result of that. That stuff's way over my head. I don't quite grasp all that, but... yeah. <laughs> It Same. makes the, it makes a really interesting character because the character is both Larry Trainer and Eleanor Poole, and then neither of them at the same time. And yeah. the way a lot of the dialogue is, he'll use "we," but then sometimes the two of them are talking to each other. You know, it's a very unique character, and I feel really bad for Eleanor Poole's you know fiance in that moment when he yeah. goes to you know he does he can't wrap his head around it. And again, yeah. it's that moment where like a character is kind of standing in for you, the reader. It's like, yeah, I don't really quite get it either, but I have to roll with it. I have to figure it out. Yeah, and I I really like that moment because it seemed like that could have been left off. Like I feel like happens in a lot of comics where you've got a uh, you know a non focal character um, who gets some bad news, and then they hold a grudge because that's what people do, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that could you know then be revisited later because you know, story points need to be revisited and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it's just lazy writing. We need to figure out what this character's going to do this arc. Let's have them confront that thing we started, you know, five issues ago. Yeah. Um, but I think that Morrison didn't necessarily want to do that. And in in that moment of the explanation to say, I'm no longer Eleanor, and yet I am Eleanor, yeah. um, was really beautiful because the her, her fiancé was broken like he was he was like we were gonna get married we were gonna do this and he's got all these pictures of them together yeah, and he breaks a yeah. glass and then the scene ends with him kind of coming to terms that one she's not coming back and how that's okay because eleanor still lives on but mm-hmm. she's no longer the person that like 
is with him. It, he they hug, and it felt like there was a res- resolution there. Maybe there's not. I haven't read the whole series, but it seems like the resolution was there in a way to say that this person was is going to be able to move on, and it's okay that they're no longer like this is like someone coming out you know i feel like there there was just this moment of like i'm a different person than what you thought i was despite all of this history that we have Mm -hmm. and i need you to be okay with that and he hugs he hugs rebus and it seems like everything's okay like he's it's hard but he's trying to accept it but but that moment is undercut because um you know you mentioned that he breaks a glass he ends up getting uh, cutting his hand so he's trying Mm -hmm. to wash his blood off and then they have that embrace and rebus finishes that scene by saying don't get blood on the coat so rebus is somehow beyond all of that beyond human concerns in a weird way doesn't really care about other people's emotions it seems but that's you know? that's like the weirdness of the character because sometimes right. they can be there like present in the moment and then other times they will be like this is not part of the bigger picture i couldn't care about these minute details because actually what's happening is much greater than what you think um right. like that character fluctuates in a way that seems inconsistent but it's definitely not because i think the following scene is like a much bigger thing like hey i had to move on i just wanted to break this to you because i felt i owed it to you Mm -hmm. maybe that's more influence from eleanor and i think we see that that larry and eleanor kind of influence rebus but they aren't just that one person like we're never just going to get a larry only rebus we're never going to get just an eleanor only rebus we're going to always get this mishmash between all three of them Mm -hmm. with rebus kind of being the dominating personality in the three of them Right. And it's, again, that idea that Morrison is playing with where we're so used to thinking in binary terms, male or female, you know, man or woman, uh, black or white. And he's really saying, like, what's even stranger is idea that those aren't that dichotomy isn't always clear. You know, there's a blurring of the lines there with that character, which I love. Yeah. And it reiterates the fact that the reason I like this series so much and, and Morrison's take on these characters is that they're all characters dealing with trauma. You know what I mean? But they're mm-hmm. not letting that define them in a, in a way. They're kind of moving through it together. And that what makes that's what makes them a team. Not that they're coming together to avenge or, you know, uh, like the Justice League, you know, that, that coming together to face these big threats. They're coming together to help each other out, yeah. you know, deal with their shit. So, yeah. yeah. And it seems like the, the end of each story kind of comes back to that. Like they always end up back at the... I guess, former Justice League of America headquarters. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, yeah. And um, especially, you know, issue five or issue six of this arc, which I think is issue 25, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where where the whole issue takes place just between um, Joshua and, uh, what's her name? I can't think. Dorothy, thank you. Um, That's just the two of them kind of showing that there is story to be told to them, because I felt like the two of them were kind of just thrown to the wayside very early on. Right. Josh was like, I'm going to be here, but I'm not going to do any of this superhero bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's Joshua Clay, um, a.k.a. Tempest. He was a character that Paul Kupperberg introduced in his part of the, the okay. control. Okay. And basically, that's the thing. Like, he kind of gives up being a superhero to kind of be the medical, you know, doctor there. Yeah. At Doom Patrol. And what all the interactions between him and Calder are really interesting because that's where you get the sense that Niles Calder is might not be all that he seems to be. You know what I mean? He might yeah. not be the, the, yeah. the benevolent leader that you, you kind of assume he is. Well, he, he has a few moments where he kind of snaps at the Doom Patrol like characters. Yeah. And yeah. to me, that was like, this feels like a stern character but to what end and you never really you don't find that out in this in this arc i'm guessing from the way that you're speaking we do find it out eventually but (laughs) maybe uh, maybe. i mean issue you know just to just to follow up i guess in the last two issues of this like issue four or issue five is this 
single one-off story where the Doom Patrol goes to fight God? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Um, a, a couple quick notes, Mike. I know we're jumping yeah. around a lot, and I apologize yeah. for that. But this, I think, just going to be the nature of us talking about this book. But mm-hmm. so the the first four issues, again, we have the crawling from the wreckage storyline that involves the Orkwith. They have these invaders called the Scissormen that show up, right? The Orkwith sends to kind of take over the planet. Yeah, and um, the Scissormen talk in nonsense. And what? Oh yeah, it's oh, a. Re- it's a reference to uh, the William Burroughs, the author used to do a cut-up method where he would just take text and then cut it up, throw the pieces of paper in the air, and where they would land, that would be what he would write down. You know what I mean? Right. So it's a way of randomizing your thoughts. And that's what Morrison was doing with the Scissormen, apparently. When he was writing them, he would purposefully misspell words to see what the word processor spell check would suggest as the actual word. And that's how he wrote the, that dialogue. No I mean, way. So it's nonsense. Yeah. Oh man! So then, I, rereading that, I was like, there, "There's some message here, right? Like, I'm supposed, there's a certain number of syllables. There's like, mm-hmm. is he spelling out words with the word? Okay. Anyways, continue, continue. So that becomes part of the next story arc. So the next two issues are about the uh, the butterfly collector, mm-hmm. who's basically uh, claims to be God, but also claims to be Jack the Ripper. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, he's a he's a character that feeds off of people's pain. Right, exactly. So he has millions of butterflies pinned up in this room, and they're all suffering because they're pinned up. They're still alive, and he's feeding off that pain and suffering to exist, basically. Right, and, and he's he, abducted somebody, but yeah, sorry. Go right, ahead. right. He kidnaps Rhea Jones, who's the character Lodestar that Paul Coverberg introduced. So he, she was in the coma after the invasion crossover. He kidnaps her and basically tries to marry her while she's unconscious. So the Doom Patrol go to, like, rescue her, basically. Yeah, and there's a, there's a great line from Cliff there that's like, hey, man, she can't really speak for herself. You can't do that. <laughs> Which right, I, exactly. I thought that was a great, like, that was a great little, like, dig at pieces of shit. So <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But so that, that first issue of the Butterfly uh, Collector story, which is, um, there must be issue 23, there's a moment where you have uh, Robot Man and uh, Jane out in public. And it may, that's that moment where I was like, yeah, the Doom Patrol are a more interesting X-Men to me because the the idea of the X-Men is that they're hated and feared by humanity, but the majority of the X-Men are conventionally attractive people who seem to have pretty useful superpowers. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Crazy Jane and Robot Man stick out like a sore thumb in public. You know, yeah. like No one yeah. knows what to make, make of them. And there's like a moment where Jane basically breaks into a bookstore. She literally like walks through the, yeah. the, the window of the bookstore, steals a bunch of books, and Cliff Steele is like, he ba- he tells the, the clerk, oh, it's okay, she's a superhero. And then he <laughs> yeah. has to write a check. But he writes down the address, like, yeah, we're the Doom Patrol. We'll cover the cost of the window and the books. Don't worry, here's the address. You know, just yeah. get in touch with us. It's a great <laughs> moment. Yes, I yes, I totally love that moment very much. And then uh, Jane does the William Burroughs cut-up technique to figure out who had abducted uh Rhea jones so she grabs a bunch of books cuts them up and does like a divination basically like cuts up all these books throws a piece of paper in the air and how they land that's how she figures out who red jack this you know god slash jack the ripper character is and that's how they arrive at his house basically in the next issue mm-hmm. so it's morrison again referencing this idea that you know art is somehow logical in a way that's different from the way we think about logic you know what i mean yeah 
great. Yeah, and, and you know, Red Jack's whole thing seems to be that he's trying to create something, trying to create something great. That's his whole spiel about when he was Jack the Ripper. He's like, I was trying to create a better human. I was trying to create a better being, and right. I haven't been able to do that, and that's something that I you know want to do. Um, and I, I think this that, that idea plays out beyond this issue, right? Like we start mm-hmm, to see mm-hmm. more of that art is logical, or there is some unforeseen logic to art as the I believe the next arc is, um, or right. kind of covers that and touches on it a little bit, just because yeah, yeah. I've read a little bit further, so I know I know a little bit. But yeah, I I, I really love this this issue in particular. Like I thought this arc was great, but I think that this the issues featuring Red Jack, I thought that was a really just cool crazy idea to run with and it it's so high in the sky and insane but it still worked for me it really really worked it that's interesting because i i feel like the the issue the issue where they confront jack in his house where mm-hmm. they go there i i that issue kind of falls flat for me because i think it is a grab bag of interesting ideas that never quite come together you know what oh, I mean? sure um but there are some it's a really very good fast ideas issue it's a very exactly. like very fast don't really get an explanation to how people solve their own individual puzzles. It seemed right. like this was supposed to be maybe an extra issue or two longer. And then Morrison was like, ah, I don't really care. And then just wrapped it up. Um, <laughs> well, the, yeah, there's that great moment uh, actually toward the end of the issue where, you know, uh, Red Jack claims to be God. And then Cliff Steele is kind of saying like, he was lying, right? That wasn't really God. And then <laughs> yeah. Rebus, Rebus says, I couldn't care less. Like, yeah. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, throughout those two issues, though, you do have the... Morrison laying the seeds of the Brotherhood of Dada, which will show up in the next arc. Where, oh boy! You know, yeah. you see Mister Nobody recruiting members, and that's going to be really fun to dig into that. But yeah, let's let's maybe um, get to the last issue of this collection, issue mm-hmm. twenty-five, which is a really interesting standalone issue. It's um, Richard Case is not art on this one. It's Doug Braithwaite does the art on this one, and it's basically like a it's a what they call like a bottle episode where you have like the characters all stuck in one place. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it focuses on Joshua Clay and Dorothy Spinner. Uh, so it's not really, it doesn't really feel like a doom patrol issue, but it's a really interesting standalone story. I think. Yeah. The, this issue was the one that if all, if any of them could have given me nightmares, it would have been this <laughs> one uh, by far one of the creepiest issues and creepiest covers for a book right. that I've seen in a while, like coming out of the era of the 80s, I know there was a lot of like really bizarro things that we saw. Like I think Sandman's kind of a good example of like, look at how much detail and hard work goes into a cover. And yet it's just like this little small, you know, tiny little comic book. And yet you know that these things are massive portraits. Whereas with this one, it was like, let's take that idea of really like punk rock pasting mm-hmm. things out of comic or out of magazines onto a thing and xeroxing it and making our own zine but it's a comic book cover and then yeah. those characters are actually things that you the things you see on the cover actually end up being characters in the book and it is absolutely terrifying like yeah. Dorothy is a character I really want to see explored because there's like this whole dark past that we touch on and then mm-hmm. even more craziness de- based on this whole what was it the memetic device or whatever right yeah <laughs> Yeah. So uh, basically, Dorothy is a character that shows up in issue 14 during Paul Kupperberg's run just as like a background character. Mm -hmm. And then Morrison was like so interested in her that he asked, you know, Kupperberg to like, yeah, I'm going to use that character again. Like, don't kill her off or whatever. But Mm -hmm. so she's a a little girl. She's like 11 years old or maybe she might be a little bit older, uh, 11 or 12 years old um, from Kansas. uh, And she... We should mention that Doom Patrol were in Kansas City during Coverbrook's run, and then they moved to Rhode Island. And there's a funny moment right. earlier in the book where 
Cliff Steele like goes to like find them and he finds a note like, oh, we went to Rhode Island. So he has to like go steal a plane to like go <laughs> to the new headquarters. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but Dorothy was affected by the, the gene bomb in the invasion storyline where she basically gets the ability to externalize her dreams where her ideas are manifested physically in the world. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. So this issue, um, it opens up with Niles Calder, again, eating a chocolate bar. This is number two. We're going to keep track of how many chocolate bars he eats in this run. He's telling Joshua that the Justice League um, had left a bunch of stuff in the souvenir room of their headquarters, where the Doom Patrol are now based. And one of them is the Materiopticon, which is a device that that turns ideas into physical reality. And this basically, this device... uh, basically triggers Dorothy's powers and makes them more powerful. And we we're introduced to Dorothy's imaginary friends who are nightmarish. Yeah. That supposedly she had killed. And that (laughs) to me was the most disturbing part of this story. But she, you know, she said she had these, these, these characters, the, uh, the, what was it? I, oh man, I didn't write these names down. I feel so bad. All I wrote for this issue was the Ruby red shoes. Yeah, essentially, Dorothy explains that she was a lonely child growing up, so she invented imaginary friends, but they began to, like, give her bad ideas and traumatize her, so she killed them with an imaginary gun, of course, because Joshua asks how you kill imaginary friends. But um, it's basically like a a bizarre family. You have Damal, which is the dad, Darling Come Home, which is the mom, and then Flying Robert, (laughs) which is the baby. And there's a moment where you see Flying Robert and his dialogue is Flying Robert, Flying Robert, ghost balloon baby thing, which I absolutely love. Yeah, which must have just been the description that Morrison gave, because right. quite honestly, that's what he looks like. That's what he is. He's this like cherub-esque child, but just extremely deformed. Right. With a balloon for a head. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's what I, I mean. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at here. So uh, basically, the re- my reading of this issue is that Dorothy... You basically get the implication that Dorothy suffered trauma where, you know, she's a girl, she's 11 years old. She never learned about, um, you know, what a period was, you know, menstruation. Mm-hmm. And then that happened to her when when she was at school. And it was such a traumatic event that she created this imaginary family and this myth of the red shoes as a way of escaping. Again, she's a re- Dorothy is a reference to, you know, Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's an amalgamation of all these ideas. And it's like... Joshua explains, like, yeah, you were tra- traumatized as a child when you were younger, and that was so powerful that you developed this imaginary story to explain it. And that's something that's really happens. I think Morrison, again, is using real-life ideas about how we deal with trauma, psychology, you know, and just twisting them enough to make them interesting and bizarre to fit his his comic. Yeah. I mean, the the idea that the, the ruby red shoes were actually just white shoes that were covered in blood, mm-hmm. like, it, it, it all seems to fit there. Um, and, of course, this went right over my head until you said it right now, because <laughs> I'm terrible at reading comics, I guess. Uh, but it it all really does does fit. I, I think the thing that I was focusing on was the line that gets called out in the collected edition that's, I killed my imaginary friends. How, you ask? With an imaginary gun. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that... There are some clever things that hook dummies like me, and then there's, like, actually paying attention to the comic and figuring out what's going on. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think this is 
another issue that I think Morrison was trying to grow these characters without putting them into a superhero scenario. Like right. that bottle issue like this super, like works really well for someone like Joshua who doesn't want to leave and Dorothy who's too young to really go help the Doom Patrol at this point. Right. And yeah. saying like they're capable, but I didn't like there's not a really good way to show them off until you do something like this. And it super works. Like the is- the episode, excuse me, the issue is very very well done in like it totally freaks you out there's a lot of just really high suspense moments in the story and it all gets of course tied together as joshua figures what's happening here but there are like little just bits and pieces laid to say hey the next arc is going to be something pretty big and my like final note for this was it seemed like morrison like he he wanted to play with some ideas of philosophy of occult of mathematics like you were saying yeah but he was like i pushed the envelope to see what was possible let's actually go five or six steps further for the next one and he starts to lay things down and then the next arc is a whole other thing um, right that we'll get into in the next episode (laughs) exactly so yeah I, i think again so the issue, um, issue 25 here, the sort of standalone issue, I think is an, an example of why I like Morrison's take on the Doom Patrol so much. Because again, he's exploring the idea of someone suffering trauma and dealing with it, working mm-hmm. their way through it. And it's a very, for all of the, you know, strangeness of it, for all of the sort of uh, suspense and it, the trappings of a superhero comic that it sometimes actually has there is something really tender and emotionally resonant about it that I just don't think you get in a lot of other comics, you know? Yeah. You do get a little bit of emotional release from the characters mm-hmm. um, in the end of this. And I think or in the end of that issue where Dorothy kind of confronts, you know, I got the shoes, I figured it out. Like I understand it. And there's like a, there's a resolve there as if she was able to finally get, have an understanding of her trauma and be able to deal with it. Um, right. And yeah, this, I mean, Solid, solid story arc. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yo, I, I think it's it's a very it's very different from superhero books at the time. I think it's very different from superhero books today. And again, you know, I don't think you'd see an X Men story that touches these types of issues in in that type of detail. You right. know what I mean? Right. So, but then of course the epilogue of the issue is you basically have the revelation that Mister Nobody has finally put together a new Brotherhood of Evil. And that will lead into the next arc, which we'll discuss. But um, yeah, maybe I'll save my thoughts for the about that for the next issue. But again, yeah. throughout these last few issues of this collection, you do see Morrison laying those seeds like, oh yeah, things are going to get a lot weirder. Just strap in. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited because I know what comes next, but rereading <laughs> this made me just as excited or maybe cool. pretty excited to do this. So. Great. Cool, Paul. I'm glad we were able to do this. I, I we're running out of tape here. Where yeah. this episode's coming close to an hour. I don't know how long these episodes <laughs> are going to be. Who knows? But uh, our next next episode will cover issues 26 to 34, which is volume two of the single collected editions, not the big books. Right. So if you're following along, make sure to read that in advance, and we'll have this episode out. Who knows? Whenever we'll we'll figure <laughs> that schedule out ourselves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll let you Patreon folks know. I promise. Exactly, exactly. And of course, if you have any thoughts about this stuff, we want to hear them. I'm very curious to see what people make of this book. Yeah, so remember, you can always follow us on Twitter. You can reach out to us. Um, Paul is at Oh Hi Pauly. I am at Mike Rappin, and the show is IRCB Podcast. You can go to IRCBpodcast.com. We've got all of our cool stuff, all the episodes. You probably know all of this. You can <laughs> exactly. email us. That's the big thing. Email us with your thoughts and maybe some things we missed at IRCB at DestroyTheSide.org or maybe things that you enjoy. You can also compliment us. That's okay as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this episode first aired on Patreon. I don't know if this is going to just be a Patreon exclusive, but for now, it's going to be. Thank you 
for supporting us. We truly, truly appreciate it. Infinity Shred does all the music for our show. They do all of everything. They're absolutely fantastic dudes. Xander's a wizard. He edits this show. I want to say thank you to Paul for encouraging me to finally actually sit down and do this with you. I know we were, we were talking about it for a long time. I'm really glad we did it. So <laughs> until next time, comics are good and so are you. Thank you.